to the second of nine sessions in the Change of Heart series, for which you need some notes. We passed out a set of notes last week, and we're continuing those this week. So some of you brought those back with you. Thank you. If you forgot or if you weren't here last week, we have plenty of sets, and the guys were passing those out pretty diligently. So did everybody get a set of notes? Anybody need? You can put your hand up. The guys have some here. Very well. I'm going to look at a line in a minute on page one, but we're going to go into page four after that to pick up where we left off. But here is the mailer description that we sent out for this series. So mailers went out to all of 48183, and uh, we said on the mailers, countless times we've seen a friend or loved one make resolutions, turn over a new leaf, or try to kick the habit, only to find them soon falling into the same pattern. A sense of hopelessness sets in, and we give up. But God wants us to be change agents in the lives of others and see change in ourselves. In his guidebook for life, the Bible, he tells us how true change occurs from the inside out. And then we give the date and invite, and we say we will be examining what God says about how we can have lasting change and help others to to do the same. Now, if you, with that, look at the first line on page one of your notes, where we say most of us attend a class like this because we want something to change in our lives or relationships. And if you were here last week, you know that I said lives and relationships are identifying two different things. In our lives, we're describing our circumstances, our situations. And then our relationships are our interactions with people. So lives are our circumstances as it relates to our situations. The relationships are our circumstances as they relate to people. So lives, circumstances, as it relates to situations, relationships are still circumstances, but they are as it relates to people. And we can have issues with either or or both of those. And most often we attend a class like this because we desire to see change in the area where the problem exists. And if it exists in both, then we want it in both. So we desire to see it change, but that's quite different than demanding to see that it change. And very often when we come to a class like this that's about change and we have evaluated and assessed our own circumstances vis-a-vis our situations and people, then we have this desire, but very often it's morphed into a demand. Even if that's not been voiced, articulated, internally, we've decided if this situation doesn't change, if this person doesn't change, then then it's hopeless. And we arrive at that approach through a very normal process that most of us go through. I described that at the beginning of our session last week. If you weren't able to be here last week, we have those recorded and I gave kind of a, long, a very long preamble to getting into the notes, but I think a necessary one that describes this normal process that people go through as we compare and contrast ourselves, sometimes conform ourselves to what it is we're exposed to in the environment uh, in which we find ourselves. 
the family in which we are, are raised, the school that we end up attending. Many of these are things that we didn't choose for ourselves, but they're all factors in how we evaluate ourselves, how we evaluate others, and make determinations about what and who need, need to change. So we decide through that kind of a normal process that it's the situation or this person that need to change or bust or it's hopeless. Yes, I need to change. And I think everybody in here would probably, if pressed, admit, even in a very difficult situation, yes, I need to, I need to change personally. But they must change or it's going to be impossible. I mean, this relationship is toxic. You guys, that's the thing, right? Over the last many years, you're in toxic. And so if a, if a thing is, it's this radioactive relationship I'm in, and that every time I'm around this person, nothing good happens, and if I'm not removed from this situation with that person, then nothing good is going to happen with my life. Now, having said all that, given that long preamble last week, I agree, with, I agree with all of that, it may surprise you uh, for me to say. I agree with all of that as viewed from a particular perspective. That everything I described last week and everything I just described here all makes perfect sense if viewed from a particular perspective. And most people have the kind of perspective that I described last week and that I just briefly outlined today. And if viewed from that perspective, that way of viewing it, then that all, makes, that all makes perfect sense. But the top of page one, notice the title of the lesson. It's a change of perspective. So we're trying to make the case in these opening couple of sessions that if you're going to have a real understanding of this lasting change that we all need, and if we're, uh, we're going to be able to help others with the lasting change they need, then we're going to have to see ourselves, other people, the situations properly. And most of us do not. That natural perspective that we acquire and we just pick up and we just go with it and it accrues over time and then it develops into the mindset that we, that we all take with us. That perspective is, as we will see, not the perspective that God gives. So just work with me here. What if uh, there's another wider lens through which you develop your perspective, through which you view? That's what lenses do, right? But you've got the, the wide lens. And that wide lens is able to help you view things, see things that you otherwise would not be able to, to see. And the Bible makes that claim. That's why we said in inviting you to this that we're going to look at God's guidebook for life, the Bible. Because the Bible makes the claim that it's a book from God's perspective. And God has the absolute widest perspective possible. So he can tell you things about you, about other people, and about your situation that it's impossible for you to see otherwise. You can't see it. It's not that you just don't see it. You can't see it. I can't either. Without someone with the highest perch who's able to view the whole thing and then tell you about it. 
The whole Bible does that. There's a book in the Bible that's all about what I just said. Of the 66 books in the Bible, there's one that's all about that. It's got 12 chapters, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is all about how you look at life. Whole thing. And if you've ever read through the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, you come away going, uh, boy, that Solomon was a pretty depressed dude. <laughs> I mean, he goes through this thing and he's describing life and it's just horrible. But as you go through that, the, the phrase you need to catch, and I would encourage you to read, it's a short read, 12 chapters. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. See what Solomon, the Bible says, the wisest man who ever lived wrote it. And he gives you this overall depressing view, but you'll find sprinkled throughout the book, he says, that's the view from under the sun. Under the sun. He says that over and over again. S-U-N. That's the view from our limited, earthbound, life-bound perspective. If that's all you got, this is the way it is. That's why it's so depressing. <laughs> that's why you come away saying, you know, Solomon, man, chill. <laughs> come on. But then he has these times in the book of Ecclesiastes where he takes you above the sun. From God's perspective. How God sees what's going on. And throughout the Word of God, you see that kind of thing happening. And failure, friends, to see life through the wider lens means you focus on the limited stuff you can see. And if you focus on the limited stuff you can see, then it makes perfect sense to me, as it does to you, that look, this toxic relationship, if that doesn't change, this person, if they don't change, this job situation I have with this impossible boss, if that doesn't change, because you've, you've got this limited perspective, as do, I, as do I. Let me ask you a question, though. Does an ideal environment result in ideal consequences? I mean, if you could imagine an ideal environment, everybody's like you. That would be an ideal environment. You don't have to deal with the boss you're dealing with. You don't have to deal with the job you're dealing with. You don't have to deal with the ailment you're dealing with. You're in a perfect environment. Does a perfect environment automatically yield perfect consequences? And you know, throughout history, including Christian history, people have falsely concluded that if I can just change the environment, then we can get the change we need. And that's why you find groups of Christians over the years isolating themselves. You know, monastics, a monk, get away from, get away from all the stuff. The Amish, our Amish friends, get away from all the stuff, right? So, I mean, here's one that maybe... How many kids did the Duggars have? Is it 19 and counting? How many did they end up with? Anybody know? All right, well, it was a bunch, okay? And this became a wildly popular show. To watch this family just do their own thing, man. We'll just, I'll teach the boys how to, 
how to build their own stuff. We'll be just kind of our self-contained thing. We'll have our homeschool group. You know, we won't have all the junk from the outside. It's wildly popular because people look at it and they go, oh, man, I wish we had that. I wish we could do that. That's really sad. You guys know where that went, don't you? What happened to Josh? What happened to that kid in his idyllic environment? See, the problem originates in the heart. And a change of address does not give you a change of heart. A change of spouse does not give you a change of heart. A change of boss doesn't give you a change change of heart. You may need to leave your job. Don't leave your spouse. You may need to leave your job. I'm not telling you it's never okay to leave a job. I'm just telling you it's not okay to have the mindset that the problem is outside. Because when you do that, then you fail like the Duggars, like the Amish, like the holiness movement in which I was reared and I was raised. I was raised as in, in what's called a Pentecostal holiness church. I'm thankful for my upbringing. I'm thankful for my exposure to the Bible, to the gospel. But it was Pentecostal holiness, and the holiness meant staying away from those people and that stuff. But meanwhile, we all got sinful hearts, every one of us. Everybody in the youth group had a sinful heart. Right? And then that morphed into my fundamentalist Baptist background that had its own version of the rules and the regulations that would keep you pristine and holy from the other stuff outside. And yet we all took our hearts into all of that. My wife and I were privileged to, for several years when the girls were young, I say my wife and I, Kim, was able to homeschool our two girls. And that worked very well for us for several years with what I was doing with starting our church here and, and all of that. And we had, and we have folks in our church who homeschool now, and I'm thankful for the option to homeschool and for people who do a really good job with it. And there are people who do a really good job with it. My wife was one of them. Uh, but we had people who came to our church for a few years strictly because they heard that the pastor's family homeschools. And they were looking for a homeschool church. So if the pastor's family homeschools, then they must believe in homeschooling. And other people in that church must believe in homeschooling. And if this thing is not a homeschool church now, surely it's going to become a homeschool church. And I would constantly tell Kimmy, hey, when you interact with people about why we're homeschooling, make sure everybody knows we're not philosophically committed to homeschooling. Our girls, as their parents, we're responsible for their education. And we can do that directly through homeschooling, or we can delegate portions of that to other people, but the biblical principle is still the same. It's not homeschool, private school, or public school. It's parents are responsible And if you choose to partner with somebody else, you're still, you haven't abdicated, you simply delegated. And there may come a day when we're not doing the homeschooling, and that day actually did come. And some of the homeschooling people said, hey, did you pray about this? That can't be God's will. Now, the reason I didn't want that 
stamp to be placed upon our church is because underlying it is this false idea that if you can remove your kids from the environment, then your kids are going to be okay. And that produces a lot of disappointment because Josh Duggar isn't the only kid in a in a an environment that attempted to be idyllic and he took his sinful heart to that. And so, friends, at the very outset, these first eight pages are spending a lot of time to try to drive that home. Now, let me try to drive it home a little bit further to give you God's wider lens, God's wider perspective on yourself, on your situations, on other, other people. So this is about how we see, how we view our lives and our relationships. Our lives are our circumstances as they relate to our situations. Our relationships are our circumstances as they relate to people. And I want to remind you of what a famous passage in the Bible in James chapter 1 has to say. If you have your Bible, you can take a look at it. If not, you can take my word that I'm reading from the Bible here, okay? And as I said last week, why is it that I'm talking about stuff that's not in your notes? Does anybody remember from last week? It's job security for me. <laughs> if it's all in the notes, then you don't need me, okay? So I've got to leave some stuff out of the notes so you have to actually show up and listen, listen to me. So famously, James chapter 1 and verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, in that passage, which is contrary to the normal process from that limited perspective that all of us acquire when we come into the world, that is quite contrary to that approach, but it's God's approach, giving you the wider lens. And here's some of what it says. It's teaching you, first of all, that trials are a given. So those difficult circumstances in your situations, those difficult cir circumstances as it relates to people, that's actually the norm. It's not the exception. In a fallen world that we inhabit, those are the, that's the rule. Hear this, the fact that we are surprised at difficulty shows how gracious God is to us in a fallen world. Because in a fallen world populated by sinful people, God could just let all of the consequences of our sin play themselves out and it would be miserable all the time. So Diane, she's shaking her head and she's like, I can't think, I can't even think about a world like that, right? No, you don't want to think about a world like that. And we're not in a world like that. Why aren't we? Because God, in His common grace, has protected us from the full consequences of all of that. So, but here's the problem. As a result of that common grace, we're surprised then when the bad stuff happens. And the way you really ought to look at it is, given that we are fallen creatures in a fallen world, you ought to be surprised when good stuff happens. But God's so gracious that we're surprised when the bad stuff happens. And James is reminding us that, hey, in a fallen world, this is the way it goes. Trials 
said Job, are common to man as sparks fly upward. And so here's James saying, consider it joy. Very first thing he does, start writing this letter, right at the top, whenever you face trials. So James tells us in that little verse four things. Trials are unwanted. They're unavoidable. They're unannounced. And they're unlimited. Now, when I say they are unwanted, that's the nature of a trial. That's why it's called a, a trial. Okay? It's a difficult circumstance. It's, not, it's circumstance. it's not something that's according to your design. If you were able to design it and I were able to design it, it would be different than it is. So it's adverse. It's an adverse circumstance. Thus it's a, thus it's a trial. And it's designed, the name, to try you to test you, as we, will, as we will see. So he gives us four things in that verse. First, it's unwanted because it's a trial. But also, it's unavoidable because he says this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, when, not if. Nobody gets through life unscathed. Everybody faces the trials. Some more than others, as we will see, different varieties, all of that, but nobody gets through unscathed. So they're unwanted, they're unavoidable. It's whenever, not if. And it says whenever you face trials. And that word that's translated face, sometimes, in some translations it says whenever you fall into trials. And it's the same word that was used in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 where Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? And you have uh, the, the travelers, and um, this traveler is, is going along, Jesus says, and he, quote, fell among thieves. He fell among thieves, and he's beaten and he's robbed, and he's left for dead, and it's the Good Samaritan that comes along and helps him. But in that verse, when Jesus says that traveler fell among thieves, that's the same word as in James chapter 1 and verse 2. You fall into trials. In other words, it pictures you just going through life and getting curveballs thrown at you. You fall into them. They're unannounced. And we've all had that. And I don't know what the future holds for me, and I don't know what the future holds for you in terms of unannounced, adverse things that are going to happen. But James says that's our lot in life in a fallen world. So they are unwanted, they're unavoidable, they're unannounced. And they're unlimited. He says, when you face, fall into trials of many kinds. The King James Version of that verse says, when you face diverse ten temptations. Divers, anybody got a King James? Divers is spelled D-I-V-E-R-S. Divers temptations. Now the reason it says divers is because diverse is various. So that's another way. If you said diverse situations, right? But it says divers. And a friend of mine was at a Bible study. And they were using the King James. And they said, so what do you guys think about that? And somebody said, you know, I guess, I guess divers, divers do have a lot of temptations. <laughs> like James was looking out for people whose occupation was 
diving. Okay? No, it's diverse, it's various, it's, it's unlimited, and they're of all types. They come in relationships, they come in circumstances, they come in jobs, they come in diagnoses, they come in economic downturns, unlimited in their, in their variety, various kinds, diverse kinds. But verse 2 says you face these trials, and the Greek word that's translated trials is the same word used in your New Testament for temptations. And that's why the King James says whenever you face divers' temptations, different kinds of trials. So if you look down, if you have your Bible, if not, just roll with me. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desire and is dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So it keeps using now this word tempted. And the translators are now translating the same word that they translated trial in verse 2. They're translating tempted down in verses 13 and 14. Same word. Why? Because the context has changed. And in between, here is what James has said. He has said in verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What James is saying is this. A trial is a test to refine you so that out of the backside of that trial, you come out better than you went into it. That's what he's saying. It develops good things in your life. That's that wider perspective. But the test can be failed so that the same circumstance that God designs to make you better, depending on how you react to it, can become a temptation to sin. So what James is saying is, That same situation, that same circumstance, that same relationship can be in the life of one person a means by which they become more mature in Christ or it can become a means by which they become tempted and sin. And the difference is how you see it and thus how you react to it. You guys see how important it is, I trust, to have a radically changed then perspective on our circumstances and to have that widest perspective possible. So with that, if you'll turn to page four where we left off. And near the top there where it says start at the right place. To solve your problems, you have to start at the right place. How you begin problem solving determines how it will end. There's a unique first step to solving your problems and it flows out of your view of the world. Again, your perspective. Problems come and go as sparks from a fire fly upward. Trouble and trials came with the fall of humanity and they will not go away until Christ comes to rescue us. Working with trouble then is part of the human experience, but we don't have to be defeated by this. Whether we're talking about your problems or another person's, there's one truth on which you can hang your hat. God's grace is sufficient. 
It's broader and deeper than your problems, which is why when working through problems, your starting point has to begin with this Christian worldview. God's all-sufficient grace may sound too simplistic. That doesn't matter. What we think about truth is not what makes truth true. God's Word is true, period. It does not require intellectual assent to make it so. You just stop there. Have you guys ever heard, or you maybe if you've had this bumper sticker, you know, maybe run out and pull out of the parking lot before anybody else sees it today? You ever seen a bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Well, God said it, that settles it, whether we believe it or not, true? But that's the, that's the idea here. See, whether we assent to the truth or not, whether we assent to reality or not, it's still real. It's still true. That's what's being said here. And it does not require intellectual assent to make it so. There is no problem outside of God's empowering grace that cannot be fixed. This does not mean your problems will be resolved according to your timetable or expectations. It does mean there is grace for whatever the sovereign Lord is writing into your life narrative. So when you begin addressing your problems, you have to begin at the right place. That will not only define the journey, but it will determine how you finish it. Your beginning is your presupposition. It's your starting point. Everything flows out of and is affected by that. For the Christian, the starting point is always God. He is the beginning. He's the window through which we think about life and especially think about our problems. So I just stop there and I ask you, friends, as you come to a class like this, probably because you have issues going on in your life, either by a circumstance or a person or both, has God been at the center of your thinking on this? And if not, that's what needs to change. That perspective needs to change. Because if that does not change, then you're going to be disappointed with the next seven weeks of this course. Because it's going to be focused on that and what God is doing and some of what God is doing, we are going to see regularly God is doing in you. So down at the bottom of page four, a person's belief system is the foundation from which he works at problem solving. This is why it's not tenable for a Christian to try to solve his problems while detached from a theologically precise understanding of God. So is God your starting point? Is he the window through which you see, discern, and solve your problems? Now, what would motivate somebody to adopt that set of lenses versus the natural set of lenses that I've talked about the last two weeks and that I said I agree with? Once you, if, you, if you adopt that perspective, then it all makes sense from there. But what would motivate someone to change the lenses? And the Bible teaches that what motivates somebody to change that is a, is a conversion. The Bible uses various words to describe it. Regeneration, that means the person's been given spiritual life. They've been converted. They now see in a way that they didn't see, and they're happy to look through lenses that they didn't have before. I don't know everybody here, but at the very outset now, for the next seven weeks, it's got to be the case that you have the lenses that God gives to his people through which to see yourself and see his world and your problems. Those come to you only through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
How does that happen? Jesus Christ came to redeem, make right what is wrong in this fallen world. And there's all kinds of stuff wrong. And he's going to come back in the future and he's going to write all of the external stuff and all the political stuff and all of that. He's going to do all of that. In the meantime, he's making right people who have gone wrong. He's redeeming people. He's changing people. He's converting people so that you see through new eyes. I'll give you an example. When I was 19 years old, I told you I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Went to Sunday school my entire life. Memorized large portions of the Bible. And at age 19, I'm on my, on my bed reading the Bible. And I'm reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that I had memorized and I had read a bunch of times. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. I memorized it, read it. And the light went on, 19 in my bed. And I understood Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in a way I never did before. I got a different set of lenses. I started looking at the Bible differently. Not just as a curiosity, not just as a book, but as life. God changed me in an instant from the inside out, so that now I look at everything in a radically different way. That's where it begins. And I would be wrong, remiss, it would be foolish for me to move forward without making sure that every person here has opportunity to understand that, receive that, and be changed by it. Because if not, friends, you're just going to continue to be on that treadmill that I described last week. And so how, did that, how does that happen? You have to recognize who you are, where you are. And God does that work on your heart. He may have begun that work on your heart when you got a mailer or you heard it announced and you said, I need that, I'm going to go to that, but here you are. And the Holy Spirit of God has been troubling you about whatever's been going on in your life. And you know there needs to be a change. And now he's brought you here and this preacher type has told you the change really has to come from the inside out. But that's all by God's appointment. You have to have him do what only he can do. You cannot change yourself from the inside out. But he offers that to anyone who humbles themselves and acknowledges their need of it. That's indication of his work in your life, that you acknowledge it. So he has come, Christ has come to redeem the world and he's redeeming people in the world right now, one at a time, from the inside out, who acknowledge that where they are currently is not right. To use the Bible's language, I have sinned against God. I have sinned, therefore, against others. And Jesus is the redeemer who makes sin right. How does he do it? Two ways. He pays the penalty for your sin on the cross in full, past, present, and future. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not then after that trying to make sure you can maintain it. He forgives your sins even into the future, sins you don't know about. 
as bad as it's been for you, as bad as you've been for others, as bad as you've been to God, whatever your story is, when Jesus died on the cross, he knew every lousy sin you'd commit, every one. And he still died for you. So don't say, I'm too bad, I can't come. No, Jesus knew. Nothing too bad. So he pays for your sin in full, past, present, and future. Secondly, he lived the life that God made you and me to live. Perfect life. And when you do what I did at 19 in my bed, and you acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you to change me from the inside out. I ask you to forgive me. He gives you two things, not one. He gives you the payment that Jesus made on the cross, past, present, future. And he gives you his perfectly righteous life achieved in his 33 years on earth. So that you now stand before God as one who is fully righteous, meaning that you're seen through Jesus who did everything right, and your sin is completely forgiven, meaning you have no punishment for what you've done wrong. And so as a result of that, that's why the Bible talks and exults in these statements like that we have, this, uh, we have this absolute hope in seeing Jesus in the future. It's a confident expectation. We know it's going to happen. We know we can't miss it. We know we can't be released from it. And the reason is because we're doubly secure. We've got his full righteousness and we've got his full payment. And it all happens in an instant. The Bible says that every person who, for whom that happens, every person who reaches out to God for that is given His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's with you every moment of every day now. So when I say my perspective change, that's because God is hanging around all the time. The Holy Spirit. And if I contemplate wrong, which I do, He convicts me. The Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convinces that we are the children of God. It's the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8, that assures us that we are the children of God. And so I have this assurance, and as I go through life, and a difficult life we all have in, in all of its varieties and its fallenness, and I have to face junk, and you've got to face junk, but as I face the junk, junk I created, junk that's come at me that other people created, that's life in a fallen world. And in every piece of that, this changed inside-out perspective goes with me. Thanks be to God. And now I can bring that changed perspective, those lenses, to everything that happens in my life. I don't have to go somewhere else. I don't have to have somebody else. I don't need a better church. I don't know where I'd find a better church, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. I don't need a better church. I don't need a change of environment. I just need Jesus to help me. And he does. He helps his people. Because they're in tune. We're seeing it the same way. We're looking through the same lens. So we're going to end our time in just a few minutes. We're going to bow and pray. And we offer you opportunity to come to Jesus Christ and to start this series with that changed perspective.
perspective. Now, you say, well, you got through two-thirds of a page. Good for you. <laughs> Diane says, you must be secure, meaning you don't think we're going to fire you. No, those uh, pages five through eight are just reiterating what I've said about the starting point and the need for the starting point and the ill consequences if you don't have the proper starting point. So I encourage you to read those this week if you haven't already, and then we'll give you another set of notes to continue next week. So we're going to pray. And as we pray, those of you who have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus, and thus you've been given the Holy Spirit and this different set of lenses, thank him for that. Thank him profoundly for that. And those of you that came into this room and you didn't know what that was, you didn't know you needed that new perspective, you didn't know you needed the inside-out change, this is your sacred opportunity to receive that. And so when we bow and pray, you pray to God, and you say in your own words, there's no magical incantation, there's no formula that the Bible gives, it's you from your heart silently speaking to God and acknowledging this sin that I talked about is you that you have an inside problem that only he can change and that you believe that Jesus Christ is the redeemer. He's the solution to that, that he paid the penalty for your sin and he lived exactly the way God had designed us to live and we will live in the future when we are with him. So Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ is the solution to my sin. I believe he died on the cross to forgive me. I ask you to apply that to me. I believe he lived the way I'm supposed to live. I ask you to apply that to me, and I give my life to you. He gives you the Holy Spirit, and you have that changed perspective. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sacred time to look into your book for a radically different perspective on ourselves and on our circumstances. It's not the natural way of looking at things. We look at things through the earthbound, limited perspective with which we are born. And so it's natural and it's understandable and all of us have done it. But Lord, if we are going to have success in true change, then we need what only you can provide, change of heart, change from the inside out, that then issues forth in our relationships and in our circumstances. Thank you for saving me at age 19. Thank you for the radical difference that that has made in all the years since. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who likewise have had that same thing happen for them and their lives have never been the same. I pray for any who came to this meeting not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and having bowed before him as Lord, not knowing how crucial it is to embrace a relationship with you through him, I pray that they understand. I pray that they see their need, that you are moving upon their heart, and from their heart, they are reaching out to you as Savior and as righteous Lord, giving their life to you. And Lord, we will give you the praise for that. And we look forward to these weeks together then as we have these new lenses through which to see what your word says about the change project. We ask you to go with us this week then and keep us safe. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to mention one last thing, and that is...
that tomorrow is the Memorial Day picnic. And any of our men who can, guys, if you can stick around for a little bit and help us set up the tents at the back part of the property, so just out these doors and straight back, and if we get several guys, then it'll be pretty light work and and pretty quick. So any of the men that can help us with that, and then those of you uh, who haven't made plans for tomorrow, then please come and join us. And especially if you're a guest, if you're new here, just come. And, and don't worry about bringing anything, really. Because uh, one, it's too complicated for me to say, bring a side and a two-liter, and I can't remember who's supposed to do what. So just show up, okay? And we'll have food, and we'll have plenty of it, and we'll have a good time. Starts at noon here at the back part of our property. Uh, hope to see you then. Uh, if not, see you next Lord's Day. Thank you.